right. So first of all, let's just say, wasn't that music awesome? Um, which yeah, you, know, you, you couldn't hear it. <laughs> but the listener will have just heard the music. And my guest today on Everyday Anarchism is David Hill, friend, colleague, and composer of the Everyday Anarchism theme music. Thank you for joining me, David. Yeah, yeah, of course, Graham. I think a uh, composer might be a little bit much. Um, well, pretty... you made that music, didn't you? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I did make it. And and by the way, I um I did like kind of stop making music for a while and just did other hobbies, but I've been slowly getting back into it. So um, if you ever want to like have some more music, I'm, I'd be happy to to make some for you. New theme song every week. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely do that. You'll have to. You'll definitely have to pester me. <laughs> um just, just send me text and, and just be like hey david waiting on that music um but yeah i can definitely do that i'm kind of like relearning all the stuff that i used to know but, but yeah it's been pretty fun and i can absolutely make you some more stuff well now that i'm back as a classroom teacher david i'm just pestering 18 year olds all the time I, i'm i'm worn out on pestering i don't want to do any more <laughs> pestering all right Okay, so uh, David and I are here today to talk uh, about Minima Moralia, which is a a book of aphorisms, uh, a, a book, a, a strange, strange book of miniature essays by this German philosopher, Theodore Adorno. This was this was David's choice, I would like to say, um, and I'd never read it, and then I found it fascinating. I, I want to jump into Adorno, but first, what made you choose Minima Moralia? Yeah, so I I had read this book when I was in graduate school and I was in my young 20s and I it just it made a it made like a really big impression on me um and it was very difficult to read for me at the time because um I mean I still don't have any kind of background in philosophy but, but yeah, I just in, enjoyed reading like someone's reflections about the the modern world and American culture and and someone told me that when Adorno arrived in in America because he he left Germany um, once the National Socialist Party came into into being, and fle we fleed Nazism. And apparently, when he got here, um, after he had been living here for a while, he was he just said something uh, to the effect of it's it's kind of just as bad here, but in in a different way. Um, just re referring to to American culture and all the other things about America that we'll probably talk about. <clears throat> And so I was I was really fascinated to kind of see what his perspective on on this country was like, and and also um, I guess probably you know worth worthwhile to note is that I hadn't read it in a while, and you're reading it for the first time, and we we both were very bored by the book by the end of it. So I was I was excited, like I was like it's going to be nostalgic and fun, and um, you know Adorno's kind of like a curmudgeonly you know super intelligent, but has these these interesting things to say about everything but yeah we're, we're both pretty bored by it and just wanted to be finished with it by the end of it <laughs> yeah except i found it thrilling at the beginning you know yeah, I, just got, I just got worn down by it um yeah. so for those of you who don't know i mean first of all adorno is a famous left-wing thinker one of the most important left-wing thinkers you know of all time very much not an anarchist very much not an anarchist and he's associated with this thing called the Frankfurt School, which it actually was a, the official name was like the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt. Um, he was one of the leaders of it. The big leader of it was a guy named Max Horkheimer. There are some other famous members associated with it, uh, most famously Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse, who we'll talk about in a second, who did become 
if not an anarchist, you know, associated with the new left and is Marcuse is very popular um, with the anarchists. And then the final figure, who was never actually a member of the Frankfurt School, is this guy named Walter Benjamin. And, and Benjamin is probably more famous and, in my opinion, more interesting than all the rest of these people put together. And one thing that's just so, I mean, Benjamin's life is fascinating. I'll, I'll definitely do episodes about him at some point. I, I wrote my master's thesis on Benjamin. And he had a number of different, like, interlocutors, like people who he really corresponded with and thought through his stuff with them. One of them was a guy named Gerhard Scholem, who was a Zionist and uh, was very, you know, sort of, emphasized the the Jewish side of Benjamin. One of them is this amazing uh, playwright, Bertolt Brecht, very much an anarchist. And the third one is Adorno, who is the most, you know, like classical, both in terms of classical music, but sort of classical philosophy and philology. And so my interest in Adorno started with my interest in Benjamin. But what's known about Adorno mostly is that he is this curmudgeon, precisely as you say, and his critiques, he, he critiques a number of things uh, related to popular culture, most famously jazz, which we'll get to. So there's this image of Adorno, it's just this like grouchy old German guy who didn't even like Brecht and didn't like jazz and is sort of like behind the times and missed the boat. And there's lots of parts of this book that I felt this way about, but there's also just some shockingly, I thought, smart and interesting aspects of this book. And to go back to everyday anarchism, it's very much a book about everyday life. He talks about slippers and doors and like the way that uh, the way that our everyday life has been informed, he thinks, I think, mostly badly by by capitalism and the culture industry. So. I thought we'd talk before we get to minimum moralia about this famous moment. Like, as, as, oh, I just realized I need to mention one more. Um, I'll, I'll set the stage with one more member of the Frankfurt School before we get to his discussion with Marcuse. So there's a member of the Frankfurt School who might even still be alive or passed away recently uh, named Habermas. He was substantially younger. But he still is, is is not a young man these days. I need to look up whether he passed away or not. Here, I can edit this out. Is Habermas still alive? Let's see. Yes, Jürgen Habermas is still alive. He's 93. So Jürgen Habermas, he was a generation younger. And after the Frankfurt School, it, it moved to L.A. to get away from the Nazis, as you said. And it moved back to Frankfurt. And so um, Marcuse was still in L.A. And... Uh, Adorno was in Frankfurt, as was Habermas, and the, the the new left movement started, which, you know, the hippies, the yippies, the students for a democratic society, all that stuff that was happening in the 60s. And they really had um, a real run-in with the Frankfurt School, and Habermas denounced them as, like, leftist fascists which just created this <laughs> unbelievable you know point of contention obviously being a fascist was the worst thing you could be in the frankfurt school this was literally a group of jewish intellectuals who had to flee hitler 
And yet they were calling, Harvard Muslims at least was calling the the student movement in the 60s, in many ways imbued with the spirit of anarchism, leftist fascists. And uh, you and I both read, along with Minimum Moralia, the correspondence between Marcuse and Adorno. And I found it really fascinating. I don't know if you wanted to jump in, if there's anything in there that you wanted to to highlight in this discussion between these two, these two very different members of the Frankfurt School. Yeah, I, I just I guess a, a useful way to frame it would just be that um, like after reading the correspondence, I thought that like coming from Los Angeles um, and kind of being I guess part of uh, like seeing the student movement firsthand, that it's it's Marcusa, right? He's the one who's who's writing to Adorno. Yes. Yeah, just just that he has like a, a more kind of youthful and and vital and hopeful attitude about the possibility for for protests to really make a difference and to somehow like like make a dent and expose the authoritarianism of the people who were conducting the war and just his his proximity to to that and being in america i i felt like that really informed where he was coming from and it was something that adorno i mean he didn't he did he did address it but adorno is kind of much more concerned i guess with the like the global stage and all the different actors that were participating in the Vietnam War. And that was just kind of like what I took away from it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure kind of how you were, were thinking about framing yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds right. I mean, one like Marcuse was obviously very excited with the students who were disrupting, you know, the um, American college campuses. But there were also students disrupting Adorno's classes in in Frankfurt, and I, I I sympathize with him in that he was like, you know, it doesn't get more anti-fascist than me, and you're lumping me in with the fascists to be uh, disrupted. Uh, on the, on the other hand, he does seem to have been just like completely unable to understand that he had, you know, that he was a member of the of the power structure, and he was just like, why don't they just leave me alone and let me teach my my classes. Yeah, he he refused to address, you know, what was what was happening in the world uh, during his classes and during I guess that at the Frankfurt School they did a lot of um like like public lectures on art and different things that Adorno was interested in. But yeah, but but the, the students did apparently demand of him that he he perform some kind of public self-criticism <laughs> of what he may be mislooking or not mislooking. That's I don't think that's a word, but what he, you know, what might be wrong with his attitude towards these things and his inability to actually talk about it, which I think, I mean, I kind of sympathize with, with Adorno on, on that point. Like that, that door, he said that, that that's kind of like, like a Stalinist approach to, to dealing with this problem. And I don't know. I don't know how you how you felt about that, but that seemed like the students were maybe taking it a little too far. No, I I actually in this case I did sympathize with Adorno. I mean, I I have an overall positive feeling with uh, with the '60s, with the student movements, with the New Left. But you know, uh, another another kind of anarchic figure, right? John Lennon. He he was very interested in the left wing scene. And when he saw the students uh, who were celebrating Mao, right? I don't remember which song it is where he complains about them carrying the little red book. Um, and he was just like, fuck this shit. Like left, like left wing fascism isn't, I mean, I would just deny that Mao and Stalin were part of the left wing. But insofar as 
They claimed to be part of the left wing. And insofar as there were branches of the 60s student movements who thought like Mao was was on to something, then it seems to me that the claim left wing fascism is actually is actually valid. I I, I do view a, a an authoritarian strand of Marxist Leninist Maoist thinking as a really as a really big enemy. And without knowing more about what the students, you know, that Habermas and Adorno were actually doing and saying, it seems to me the complaint of left-wing fascism is valid for some for some members of that of that movement. I mean, that's certainly what John Lennon thought. And, you know, John Lennon was clearly clearly an anarchist. Yeah. And um, it, it kind of makes me think too of, of some missing context that I'm, I'm not sure whether or not Adorno was even aware of it or if it may have been after his time. But I was reading uh, a couple months ago, the Philip Roth novel, American Pastoral. And it, it talks a lot about the, I guess you might call them terrorist groups um, that were that were left wing, like the Weather Underground and, and different groups that would actually perform violent acts as a way to, to protest the Vietnam War. and. I mean, I think Adorno would probably definitely disapprove of that. That's kind of just sort of, you know, giving in and using the tactics of the enemy to try and achieve an end, which just breeds more more violence, as, you know, like MLK would say. I know that um, on your podcast, you're usually making a lot of Martin Luther King Jr. references, which I think is cool. But, um, but yeah, things like that, I, I feel like are interesting. And I'm, it makes me curious what Adorno may have thought of that. Yeah, it's true. And it's true that that a lot of those people, you know, identified as identified as anarchists or, you know, identified as, you know, Marxist Leninists or or Stalinists. And it is my attempt to, you know, sail an intellectual ship perfectly, you know, between the Scylla of Marxism, Leninism on one side and the Charybdis of like you know, Ted Kaczynski Unabomber style violent anarchism on the other side. And that's not that's not easy to do. And obviously Adorno, I mean, Adorno wasn't describing himself as an anarchist, but he obviously was trying to thread that needle as well. And he thought the students were, you know, were veering too far towards either. I mean, he he hated overly authoritarian leftism, Adorno did. He also hated um what he saw as like really ideologically incoherent leftism, which I think is what he would have uh, described a lot of the student movement as being about, is they didn't have a theory, you know? Uh, this has always been the complaint about anarchism is lifestyle anarchists, is they're just like, yeah, just, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, which again is something that I tend to espouse on this podcast. I'm like, yeah, go, you know, go to the farmer's market and, try and eat less meat and, you know, just, just do the stuff that we need to do to bring about the new world in your own life. And Adorno, like many other very smart thinkers was like, that is not, you know, lo locally sourcing a shirt is not going to defeat capitalism. And you are kidding yourself <clears throat> if you think it's going to. And I, I, I hear that. I thought he made some excellent points against Marcuse, even though in the end, Marcuse thought there was real potential in the student movement and Adorno clearly didn't. Yeah, I, I, it also makes me wonder, like, where is there a, a point where Adorno would justify violent acts um, in protest against the things that he thought were destroying the world? Um, but on, on a funny side note, um, you mentioned Kaczynski. 
Um, he's certainly a violent, I don't know if I'd call him a leftist. I probably, he seemed to be apolitical and I don't really, really know what he was. He was against technology for sure. But, but anyway, uh, just like a funny side note, I was, I was a graduate student and I was teaching composition classes and they, um, the, the writing department gave us the option to do a special topics and we could pick what we wanted to teach. And I was like, all right, this is, this is kind of fun. I can do something that's, that's strange and that might appeal to students. So I did a, a course on, it was for sophomores on teaching argument, teaching academic argument. And we, we did manifestos. So I just picked a bunch of different manifestos and I read the Unabomber manifesto with them. And, and some of the students, when we talked about it in class, they were like, you know, I, I kind of do agree with like a lot of things that he says, but then every, every once in a while, he's just like, and this is so why people have to die. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the students are like, and yeah, I, I couldn't really go along with him on that point. <laughs> yeah, well, I know, I, I mean, he definitely thought he was an anarchist. And, you know, there's a one, a really wonderful essayist named Patricia Lockwood. She's just one of my favorite writers alive today. And at one point, one of her essays, she says, man, the Unabomber was right. I think it's an essay about Trump. And then she's like, parentheses, well, you know, not about the bombing part, right? I mean, that's, a, that's another thing. It's like, that's the thing is Kaczynski and Thoreau can sound really similar in a, in a good way. And then he's like, and that's why I'm murdering people. And, and it's it's really easy if you're someone like Adorno to survey the history of the anarchist movement and see either just like ineffectual people like Thoreau and you know violent idiots like Kaczynski and I think that's what I think that's what he saw when he saw the student movement a bunch of people who were like wanted to you know turn on tune in and drop out he didn't he didn't want you to drop out of society or a bunch of people that wanted to just blow it all up and embrace violence in a kind of nihilistic way and both of those critiques are made against anarchism all the time and they I would say they're valid critiques against certain people who can or have been or labeled themselves anarchists. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely with that. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess like every time I, I think about these issues and just kind of reading the book, it, it always does kind of come back to trying to understand like what Adorno's um, perspective is on things. And he just, I mean, he seems definitely a bit cagey and just reluctant to engage with ideas or activities that he's just not very interested in. And, and we talked about this before when we had our conversation preparing for the podcast that at the end of his life, like he, he may have considered himself an important philosopher in the Western tradition. And he was working on his final work aesthetic theory that was published after he died. And he may have just been like, you know, what? I'm really old. I kind of want to like kick back and, you know, drink some, some nice wine and, you know, talk about Samuel Beckett. I don't want to like, have to deal with students coming up and and like doing graffiti in my classroom <laughs> he mentioned graffiti in the yeah in the yeah and there's a famous there, there was one protest where some female students uh took their tops off and are standing naked and then i think they dropped flower petals on his head uh is one is one of the protests and you know i see i see why they did that i also see why he was like I'm sitting here trying to give you the tools, the critical theory that you need to destroy capitalism <laughs> and you're throwing flower petals at me and that sort of thing. Um, I, I guess I want to get to minimum morality now, but I will say the last thing is we don't know the end of this story between Marcuse and Adorno because Adorno dies 
And in fact, the final letter written to Marcuse is dated the day that Adorno died. So it would be fascinating to see what had happened. They, the two of them were trying to maybe find a common ground, a synthesis about their differences over the student movement. And we'll, it just it didn't happen. Adorno was too sick and didn't live to, to resolve this if it was able to be resolved. Okay, I actually didn't realize that about the date in his death. So they, they talk about planning to get together, I think in, in France or Italy somewhere. So, yeah. so that face-to-face -face meeting never took place. Yeah, Adorno died before it could happen. Hmm. All right, so why don't you go first? Because you picked the damn book. <laughs> what, what should we talk about with Minimoralia? Yeah, I don't know. I guess the um, maybe the dedication, um, the introduction that he wrote is probably the, a good place to start. So there's one little passage that I'll have to find it for us. I know you have a different edition, right? So yeah, dedication. Excuse me. The subject still feels sure of its autonomy, but the nullity demonstrated to subjects by the concentration camp is already overtaking the form of subjectivity itself. Subjective reflection, even if critically alerted to itself, has something sentimental and anachronistic about it. Something of a lament over the course of the world, a lament to be rejected, not for its good faith, but because the lamenting subject threatens to become arrested in its condition and so to fulfill in its turn the law of the world's course. Yeah, that's exactly the passage that I that I marked down to. And um, and I guess like the, the question that I had for you and that I, I felt would be interesting for your viewers is like you people people walk around thinking that they have freedom that they have autonomy um, is the word that, you know, the translation uses, but Adorno would say that they, that you really don't. And everything that you think about the world and about yourself, um, that, that's not subjectivity. It's not like authentic, you know, these are my thoughts kind of thing. It's, it's just like what you've absorbed from your, from your culture and what the, the daily actions of your life through having a family or through your job or through your hobbies, um, all the emotions that you feel on a daily basis and throughout your life, like all of that stuff, it, that's not you having freedom. That's just like, I mean, this is a, a crude way to put it and, and not a way that I would necessarily agree with, but it's just like this objective historical force and it's economic factors and how they, how those factors are expressed through political ideology and, and all this other stuff. And I was thinking, like, if that's if that's how he felt about human experience and about how people, um, like, in their in their head, you know, see themselves in the world, then how is it really possible to have like all the things that you come back to, like mutual aid and um, just you know, like wanting to be a good person and help people out and 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 that kind of thing, and 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 to generate community and consensus and all the types of things that you feel like are important for every day anarchism yeah oh that's too hard um and it's too hard because you know i don't either adorno never explains it in a way that is clear enough or i just don't i just don't understand it enough so here here we go so he talks later one of the one of the enemies of this book is is dewey he he mentions dewey a few times by name and he also mentions instrumentalism, which is Dewey's philosophy. And he also just has a, has a vaguely anti-Deweyan sense in this book, which Dewey basically would argue that if you do, 
if you do mutual aid and you do this consensus building, what Dewey calls democracy, something will emerge that is pretty like scientific and and rational. And also, you know, all of the things that are good about everyday everyday anarchism based on consensus and and democratic and that sort of thing. And Dewey calls this, among other things, reconstruction. And Adorno says that reconstruction is impossible, that the forces of the Enlightenment, which are the, the things that Dewey hopes to use to put the world back together, have been just hopelessly corrupted and efficiency and objectivity, which uh, Adorno's got a nice thing where he says actually what what the efficiency experts call objectivity is actually subjectivity, and it's critical theory that's objective. Maybe we'll get to that as well. He says all that stuff is impossible. The world can never be reconstructed. What the world needs to be is redeemed and it is through redemption that we will escape this trap and i was reading this and i was just like what the fuck <laughs> like like yeah sure sign me up for the redemption of the world i'll take it but besides dewey and reconstruction how are you going to put the world together uh, he, he it, it seems to me like almost a religious thing and i didn't he doesn't explain because these are aphorisms so if you're reading this book they're aphorisms he does it's not a extended argument he doesn't explain what would redeem the world or how we would get redemption just that we just that we need it and and reconstruction which is a, admittedly a pretty scientific way of doing what i'm calling anarchism but nevertheless one of the ways of doing it he just thinks is hopeful hopelessly lost to the to the technocrats already but i'd like to give reconstruction a, a try unless he can explain where the redemption is coming from he clearly doesn't mean from god i don't know yeah that, that's one of the things that i both love and hate about adorno is that he i mean he's steeped in heidegger and and Nietzsche, and he knows that you know metaphysics is is something that is is completely finished with, especially after you know the concentration camps, as he as he would probably agree with. Um, and yet he still has that language about transcendence and and redemption and those yeah. types of things. But it, but it's a, I mean it's it's not like he explains or directs like how that is possible. Besides the type of thing that you just mentioned from Dewey with reconstruction. But at the same time, I mean, it does give. He's he's absolutely a stylist, and he. I think there is like a like literary worth to to reading him, um, and I do like that he still has that like that horizon of of transcendence and and redemption and all of this, um, because it does it does show that he he definitely had some hope, and and also I don't I don't know like how applicable this would be, but I. I used to really like Wallace Stevens, and you you know that from from teaching the American Studies class with me, and um and Stevens had the, this idea that sometimes you have to believe in things that you know are not true, um and I think he was referring to like the the, the idea that you have like a Walt Whitman unified self, mm -hmm. um, that that it's not that you don't have that you have this thing that's very fractured and um it's like a bunch of pieces of a broken mirror kind of thing. But but he did say, I mean, he didn't say it directly, but you have to, you know, you have to believe in something, um, even if, you know, deep down that it's not, it's not possible or it's not true. Um, and if you do believe in it, then just like with Thoreau, with the, um, the civil disobedience essay, 
like it just takes one person to kind of make some kind of impact um and that that belief is is important for that so i do like that about adorno too but you're right it's it's kind of just a cop out you know he's going to have this whole book complaining for what 300 pages about capitalism and then he has a one paragraph finale where he just says we need redemption <laughs> what kind of crap is that <laughs> yeah it's like again yeah sure fine redemption i'll take it but uh if you didn't tell me how to get it and you know it does seem like if there is a like a transcendental version of redemption if there was a place to look for it in the 60s it was in the student movement i mean it seems to me that it was that flower power is a version of redemption not not reconstruction you know the sds was maybe saying like let's let's use dewey and tactics in non-technocratic means and put this world back together you know let's reconstruct it flower power was just like you know who cares like let's just redeem the world but it like the closest thing to redemption it seems to me is you know nude students throwing flowers in his classroom it seems to me that he was on the side of reconstruction not <laughs> not of redemption yeah i do want to say though there's just like amazingly wonderful parts of this book like one of the things he says uh is you know femininity is something that's constructed by men and is a cage for women which is you know pretty a, a, a pretty sharp and these days quite feminist observation and coming from this old fuddy-duddy i was super impressed i also love he completely bashes the like girl boss phenomenon he's like women women think they're liberated because they're in the workplace the workplace is not is not liberation and if you if you accept the workplace you are you know a wage slave and if you're a woman and you're like hooray i'm a wage slave now i have achieved autonomy and independence man yeah. that's that's no good yeah the, the, when i was thinking about this earlier today because i remember you said you really liked the uh, adorno's observations on on women's liberation and that that aphorism and um the, the thing the closest thing that i i i could kind of compare it to was the moment in taxi driver where um What's her name? Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. She plays a child prostitute, and and she's talking with um, the taxi driver Travis Bickle, and um and they're talking about like why she does this or something, and she's like, oh, I can do what I want, like like I'm making money doing this. This is women's lib. Haven't you ever heard <laughs> that? <laughs> it's, it's like she's she's being exploited in the worst possible way, um, being a, a child prostitute, and and Bickle just is just like women's lib. You don't know. You don't understand what you're saying, like. <laughs> But um, but any, I mean, like to to come back to the the passage that you mentioned, I I thought it was it was great, and I just I mean, why did that kind of stand out so much for you? Um, well, for one thing, I think it 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 stood out for me because I actually understood it. There's lots of parts that I that I don't understand, but I really think Adorno's really sharp when he's actually clearly giving his his take on some element of modern culture or modern society but when he's just writing about heidegger and what it means to be subjective or something he totally he totally loses me and what i liked about this book is there was more discussions of the everyday world than in any other adorno than i had ever read before yeah, and he. I I had to read aesthetic theory, and for a graduate class, and it was it was this old professor, and he was he was on his way out, and um, he wasn't gonna die, like he was just gonna retire, 
but he, he was he could do whatever he wanted and he, he had these really strange classes and he did one on aesthetic theory and alfred hitchcock movies which is a really strange combination of things <laughs> but it was a fun class and um and anyway in, in that book adorno is is really in the weeds responding to, to heidegger and I, I had never read being in time and i don't think i ever will it doesn't seem very interesting to me but he, he spends so much time doing that. And then every once in a while, he's just he's he has these incredible insights into modern literature and into classical music. And he, he talks, for instance, one time about how people were just like totally enamored with Beethoven and his his use of um, like the way that he could you know create different moods and express feeling with greater nuance than the composers that came before him. And apparently someone was saying this to Beethoven. He's like, Oh yeah, that's not like genius or inspiration or anything. That's just like like really effective use of diminished chords. That that's how I did that. Yeah. <laughs> and when you when you like really step back and, and think about it, it's just I don't know. Like Adorno goes on to talk about it, but it's just like that's how he thought about it, and it is something that has inspired you know musicians and and people that love music since Beethoven died. But it's just like this very practical kind of thing, and. And Adorno is really good at getting getting to that. Like you said, in this book, he's talking about culture and he's talking about the real world. And that's where he gets at. But he does it in his other works, too, I've noticed. So do you, do you think uh, like the the issues that he raises about women's liberation and women's place in society at his time are applicable to the world now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's another reason why I liked both of those things is it seems that you know, the problem of, look, it, when he's talking about how, you know, being a, being a professional woman is just a form of exploitation, he sounds exactly like Emma Goldman. And in that sense, he's definitely well, well behind Emma Goldman. Um, but the, the problem of what it means to be a woman, I mean, uh, de Beauvoir has not written The Second Sex at at this point and it seems like this aphorism from adorno could be roughly translated into one is not born but becomes a woman i mean he really got the is a cliche term but you know the social construction of gender and he conveyed it in just a couple of sentences in a way that i think i can you know share with my students in the future i think we should also point out that when we were originally talking about this, you mentioned that you thought this book was funny. And I don't know whether it's meant to be or not, but it is hilarious. Like at one point he says that objects, certain objects have just like built into them a certain emotion. For example, slippers are <laughs> built, are, are formed by the hatred of bending down. And that's why slippers exist because of the hatred of bending down. And I was like, yes, Adorno. That, that is why when I walk the dog, I usually wear my slides, my Adidas slides, and run the risk of a copperhead bite here in the North Carolina because of the hatred of bending down. You, you, you got me, Teddy. You got me. Uh, yeah, I wonder. I wonder, like you, like was he trying to be funny there, um, or is is it just like his curmudgeon kind of tone? Is he such a curmudgeon that he doesn't realize that it's hilarious to talk about the hatred imbued in slippers? He probably knew. He probably knew it was funny. Because there's that one point where he, he talks about how Americans, they don't have raised beds. Like, they'll just have, like, a mattress on the floor. And I forget what he says about it, but he's, like, is, his conclusion is basically, like, Americans are used to all kinds of degradation. And <laughs> not, not having, like, a box spring and a, and a bed stand is one of them or something. I don't know. 
another one i mean you know uh i i found i find it convenient to have a door that that closes after me because i have pets and small children that i want to keep contained in the house but one of the things he says is like one of the one of the signs that the the modern world is becoming like dehumanized is that doors close themselves and <laughs> you, you used to be able to close your own door but now you walk through and it just slams shut and again i don't know how much i mean that's just hilarious like the doors close themselves fascism has won when the doors close themselves he, he talks about bay windows at some point too <laughs> he, he's really interested in just the entryways into spaces i guess but um but i mean the the thing about the like women's lib and and that type of thing is that it's in, in a very different way albeit it, it's true for men as well like you think you're you think you're free um and that you can have autonomy and get a job and make lots of money and support yourself um but it's i don't i don't think it's it's quite I don't think that the quality of it is as bad as it is for a woman, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, not being a woman, I'm I probably not the best person to speak on these issues. But but anyway, I just like I think it's it's similar for for any human being. And when it, when I was reading this the stuff about women, it's like that you have this movement movement where you gain suffrage and you're starting to become more of a powerful force in society for lots of different reasons. And I just imagine like a middle management you know, guy at a factory doing a job interview with a with a woman at the time, uh, a newly emancipated woman, and her going there and doing the job interview, and and this guy is just like, hey, so so I noticed you're emancipated. That that's awesome. That's really great for you. You're gonna have a lot of fun with this. All right, now just sign your name here. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, okay, yeah, we own you now. Yeah, here's our HR policies. Yeah, sorry about that, but um. Yeah. Hey, we, we, we're going to give you a free lunch every second Friday. So that's nice. <laughs> you could dress casually as well on Friday. <laughs> but but Adorno, Adorno to me does kind of have that like stand-up comedy sort of, um, I don't know. It, it makes me think of modern stand-up comics a little bit. Yeah, it's like instead of observational humor, it's observational philosophy. Like, instead of like, what's what's the, what's the deal with doors these days? Why are they so fascist? Am I right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's Seinfeld slippers. Do they not inscribe the human hatred of bending down? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, excellent. That's good. Oh God, this is you're the first person I've ever had on this podcast that I'm comfortable enough with to do this. So we need to start. Uh, we start wrapping this shit up before I start doing like a Jerry Seinfeld impression or yeah, something. No, that's cool. We're going to be back for some uh, for some Batman stuff. Right? Yes. Yeah. So I, I definitely want to talk about the final aphorism. But before, yeah. So I'm starting. I, I did a podcast on Batman, Batman versus anarchism. I'm hoping eventually to write a book on it. And uh, I am inviting David back to to talk through at least the Christopher Nolan Batman movies to help me help me work through this. So we'll do Batman Begins at some point in 2023 but first why don't you why, why don't you take us out with minimum morality i know you want did want to talk about the ending yeah yeah for sure and, and just um just to mention like hopefully when we do the batman we'll have some some new music um for your introduction so oh, excellent yeah, so that'll be good but um yeah the ending let's see i mean i don't know i, I feel like you should you should take us out you should be uh at the helm here was there was there anything That's redemption yeah the only philosophy which can be responsibly practiced in the face of despair is the attempt to contemplate all things as they would present themselves from the standpoint of redemption. 
and then he, he talks about the messianic light. Um, you know, he says it's impossible. Fine, I'll 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 give it a crack, right? Which is to say, like, when you are inside this system, I'm not, I I completely disagree with calling it late capitalism, as if in this like Marxist sense that we know how long capitalism is going to last, et cetera, et cetera. They've been calling it late capitalism. Late capitalism is getting pretty old these days. But when you're when you're in this system of oppression and and exploitation it does seem that redemption is impossible and it is impossible to get outside and see it i think he might be thinking about benjamin's angel of history when he talks about seeing you know society from outside in this messianic way but it's also true that it's it's going to happen i mean whatever this is is not going to continue forever i like to think that there's something better coming after this and i like to think that i am working towards that coming to be but if there is a problem with despair like it's never it's never going to change it's never going to get better this is a good reminder it's not going to stay this way whatever it is and to turn it back to kropotkin which is the place where you know, Adorno never would. Kropotkin would say the spirit of revolt and dissent is always, always, always alive as long as there are humans. And so if you're wondering where that messianic impulse is going to come from, it's going to come from, from us. And as long as we are humans, that revolt that redemption will happen i wish i could promise it was happening in the next you know few weeks we could uh you know destroy wall street and destroy all the bread factories he does he does complain about the bread factories and how they have like well he says the existence of the bread factory is proof that we no longer believe in our in our daily bread and that christianity is wrong now that we now that we have the the mech mechanisms of capitalism giving us our daily bread but you know, let's let's bake bread and uh, and and garden and make things with our hands and practice critical theory and love one another and then we're embodying prefiguratively the messianic spirit that even old fuddy duddy Adorno says we need. Yeah, yeah. Adorno may not be able to take us there, but he articulates it very well. Um, is is I think the takeaway for me. But also, just like we talked about before, with him being a stylist, like he, he's 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 saying here, like you need just to have cultivate a kind of perspective where you're you're seeing the the things that you're so used to seeing every single day, you slowly start to see them in a different light, and they look indigent and and violent, or however he puts it, or distorted to you, or they look distorted in from the perspective of the messianic light, and and yeah, that's that's perfect. Like he. In aesthetic theory, the, the one line that I'll never forget from it, which I, I kind of halfway do forget because of the translation and one particular word of it, but he says, if you fail to perceive the world as <clears throat> as foreign, then you, you fail to perceive it as all um, at all. I, I'm not sure if he says foreign or alien. I kind of think he probably, they probably translated it as foreign, but that's kind of like, that's the, the best thing that you could do for, for trying to become, you know, a person who's perceptive of what's going on and 
is wants to be creative and do all the types of things that you talk about in your podcast. So, see, I thought that was it's one of the one of the good things about Adorno. Yeah, I think I think that's right. He does not he does not provide a program for redemption. He even says that reconstruction is, you know, a fool's errand. But he gives you a great way of seeing seeing the world in in the way that it is not the world we want it to be. And and in that respect, critical theory. I mean, that's what he claims to be doing is critical theory. He does not claim to be doing redemption, just helping us see the necessity for redemption. That's got a real John the Baptist vibe. Like, or or Nietzsche, who says the same thing about Zarathustra. Like, I'm not gonna put this world back together for you, but I'm gonna try and dissolve it. I'm gonna blow it up in your mind, and then you gotta put the world back together. Yep. All right. That seems good. Yes. All right, David. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, Grant. I really appreciate it. And I'll look, first, I'm look forward to doing it again. Yeah. First time on Everyday Anarchism, but not the last. Okay. And then, you know, the music, which you're about to hear, it's by my guest, David Hill. <laughs>